One of the ways that God makes it right is by calling us to his word and opening that up to us. So tonight we're going to look at Habakkuk and then a quote from Jesus um, from Matthew in the Beatitudes. So hear God's word for us tonight. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. And then from the Gospel of Matthew, Christ said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Thanks, Kendi, and good evening, everyone. Welcome tonight to Bethany. I'm honored that you come out uh, this late at night for worship together and trust and pray that our Lord will speak to us tonight as we gather uh, at the end of a week, which for various reasons for many of you, I know, has been challenging and difficult. And uh, when it feels as if things are somewhat falling apart, we do look to Christ for interpretation and ask God to speak to our hearts. And I pray that that's what will happen this evening as we spend these moments together. So please take a moment. Join with me as we pray together, and then we'll be looking at the text from Matthew chapter 5. Thanks, God, that we have the privilege of gathering uh, within these walls this evening. And it is a privilege, and we're mindful of that uh, in many, many ways tonight. Uh, we have shelter in a world where many don't. And um, comfort and access uh, to, to, to fellowship and to one another and to your word. Our prayer, Father, in a world that... Uh, is filled with confusion and filled with fear, is that you would speak to each of our hearts tonight, Father. Not only to comfort us, though we need comfort, and not only to instruct us, though we need instruction, but our prayer, Father, is that you would shape us so that we might uh, live up to that calling you have on each of our lives. Invited to go out into the world and shine as light and be people of hope, no matter what else is happening. Give us that wisdom, Father. Shape us. Give us next steps to take even tonight, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have gone backpacking in here and ever used a water filter to purify your water? Has anyone done that? Raise your hands if some of you had. So, so, I mean, many of you do that, and you know that you don't want to get Giardia. It's this terrible, terrible thing where you throw up, and, and apparently, my wife says, it feels like being pregnant. But I wouldn't know that for some reason, so, but she says that's what the Giardia feels like. Uh, my confession to you is I don't always use a water filter when I'm backpacking, and here's why. My theory is, and I'm not a biologist, and if you are, don't correct me. I love this ignorance. <laughs> um, my theory is that the higher I go in the mountains, the closer I get to the source of the water, the closer I get to the source, the purer the water will be, less likely to get giardia. So if it's down in the valley, then I use the water filter. They get higher, I don't use the water filter, and I've actually, a few times in my life, been able to drink from the source, right? Right where water's coming out of the mountain in, a, in the form of a, of a uh, spring, right? That then becomes a stream, that then becomes a river. <clears throat> I love that. Here's what I share with you this evening, because I'm building this, in a sense, metaphor about our desires, and the thesis this evening of what we're going to talk about is... Uh, we have downstream desires that we face every day. We live by our desires, as I'll share in a moment. But all of our desires are purified as we go upstream. And Christ is the source. 
That's what we're talking about this evening. We're talking about desire. Downstream drinking versus upstream drinking. In other words, we say it this way, the closer you get to the source, the purer the water will be. And the same thing's true of our desires. And <clears throat> fundamentally this evening, here's something to just ponder. All of us in the room are motivated every day by lots of different desires. True? How many have ever had this experience? Uh, uh, you got up in the morning and you didn't want to go to work, but you went anyway. Has anyone done that? Yeah. Like, why would we do that? Well, it's because uh, a more profound and actually more important desire than our desire to skip work is our desire to eat <laughs> and, know, and have shelter, right? So we have these very fundamental desires, and those desires actually, they do. They shape our priorities. We do, we do things that we don't want to do. I'm sometimes sitting on Mondays, because I live up in the mountains, I'm sometimes sitting on Mondays in meetings here, and my wife, who has the privilege right now of being unemployed, uh, she'll text me pictures from the slopes on Monday afternoon. And it's payback, because I used to do that to her all the time when she was working in Seattle Pacific. I'd have my day off, and I'd go skiing, and I'd text her. And now I get a text, and all it says is, ha ha! That's all it says. Ha ha! Don't you love that? I'm, and, but I still go show up for work, not only because I love you and I love what I do, but because I want to eat also, and that's the reason. So d desires motivate us. We work because we want food and security. We date because we want companionship, right? Uh, we get an education because we want meaning in our work, whatever it is. We want to perfect our craft, but we're motivated by desires. But now, it's also true that our desires are sometimes out of control. Why do we drink sometimes too much? Why uh, does uh, sex become a substitute for intimacy? Why do we struggle with lust? Why do we sometimes we want solitude when we need companionship or vice versa? So desires are tricky because desires motivate us often in good ways and also desires unchecked are very destructive. Now, <clears throat> both fundamentalism within Christianity and much of Eastern religion addresses this by saying, well, here's the, here's the answer. Kill your desire. Desire is wrong. Buddhism declares as a fundamental tenet, desires at the root of all suffering. Ergo, kill desire, create emptiness, achieve peace. Expect nothing, you'll never be disappointed, right? That's basically that. Uh, and, and, but the problem with that is if I kill my desire, uh, there, it's A, it's still there, and B, in my attempts to kill my desire, I end up building walls around my heart, my soul, my life, and I end up disengaging. In fact, if you know Hinduism a, a little bit, you know that the holy man in Hinduism is called a sadhu, right? And if you've traveled to India at all and you've seen the sadhus, like these are the ones you aspire to be. Like this is at the, like, the upper echelon of the... the, the, the social and spiritual strata, the sadhu. But here's a sadhu. It's a naked man sitting on a street corner. His ribs are sticking out because he hardly eats anything. His eyes are rolled back in his head. He's in some sort of a trance. He's got, uh, you know, sack, sackcloth at his feet. He's got ashes that he's putting on himself all the time. He's not saying anything. He's not looking at anyone. He's not engaged in relationship. He's not teaching. He's not serving. He's not giving. He's not practicing hospitality. He is empty. And that means he's arrived. Why? Because he's killed all desire. Is that what you want? Well, here's the deal. Whether you want it or not, it's not what God has for you. 
Because I'm here to tell you, look, the gospel is much bigger than that. And so you don't need to say, man, it's a big, scary world, complex. I'm just going to pull back. No. The gospel works if you're a Roman soldier. The gospel works if you're a businesswoman in the book of Acts and you're a merchant, you know, you're selling, selling cloth. Or if you're an artist or if you're a couple and you want to have great intimacy, both sexually and emotionally and every other way, the gospel works for you. The gospel works for the Olympic athlete. The gospel works for the Amazon employee. The gospel works if you're a nurse. The gospel works if you're in a hospital. The gospel works if you're a patient in a hospital. Don't kill desire. That's not abundant life. So we start there. But then we're like this, okay, well then what do, I, what do I do with my desires? And here's Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Three things, three facets of our longings. Facet one, I need a right relationship with my longings. I should hunger and thirst, it's good. Second, I need the right object for my longings. Second facet, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Third, right outcomes for uh, my longings, the third facet, right outcomes, contentment. I want to look at all three of these briefly this evening. It leads to a time of response at the table here and in, in our little prayer books that we have up here. So follow with me. We start here. This is the first thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We'll just stop right there. The first facet, right relationship with our longings, okay? And in other words, here's Jesus, embrace hunger and thirst. Your desires are good. We want to rush to the object of our longings, but first we have to talk about the goodness of longings. Like you live in a world of rhythm where your longings come and go, right? It's 7.36, and in, in my world, my rhythm, by around 9.30, I'm, I have a longing. Do you know what it is? It's to go to bed, right, and sleep. I probably won't fall asleep until 10.30, but that's a different problem. But I want to go to sleep about 9.30, if you're a college student here, you want to go to sleep about 1.30, probably, whatever. But eventually it hits you, and you want to go to sleep. And tomorrow morning, so I'll sleep, and it'll be great. Wow, I slept, and then I wake up at 5.36, I'll wake up. If you're a college student, 9.30, 10, you wake up, right? Uh, but there's this rhythm, I, like I hunger for rest, I rest, and now I'm satisfied. So then I get up. But then by the end of the day tomorrow, I'll be hungry again for rest. I hunger for food, so what do I do? I eat. Then what happens? I'm satisfied, and then what happens? Pretty soon, I'm hungry again. So there's a rhythm of, of uh, hunger and thirst. Our appetites are motivators, right? Uh, and so you don't want to go to work, but you go to work anyway. Why? Well, hunger. And you, you also hunger for intimacy. And you also hunger for meaning, and perhaps you hunger for justice. So we have these hungers, right? For safety, for security, for meaning. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Down at the bottom, the most important things, like the first thing is you're, you, want, you need food and shelter, right down here. And then above that, oh yeah, I need to, you know, meaningful work, that kind of thing. And you know, friendships then, and int intimacy, and climb the ladder until the, the top, Maslow says, the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, and I translate it as saying, you know, what, what I view the top as from Jesus' perspective is blessed to be a blessing. In other words, like, I'm now living into God's story to bless and serve others. I want to shine as light. I want to be salt in a saltless world or whatever. I'm called to be a blessing. So, uh, all of that happens because we have desires, so then I ask the question, well, why would, anyone, why would anyone want to kill desires then if desires motivate us to this pyramid where we're fully in God's story? Why, 
Why would anyone think desires are bad? Here's the problem with desires. Two things. First problem, desires are cyclical. And so, I mean, the thing about desire that's so frustrating is you're never satisfied in a way that the door is closed on that desire, ever. So, like I already said, uh, you drink water, you're satisfied, but then you're thirsty again. You eat, you're hungry again. And Jesus said this, John 4.13, to the woman at the well, drink from this well, you'll get thirsty again. John 6, eat this bread, like those guys who ate manna in the wilderness. If you eat this bread, you'll hunger again. But there's a bread that satisfies. There's a water that satisfies. Again, in the Bible, sex is a desire. And the Bible is filled with examples of sex leading to momentary satisfaction, followed by not only just a loss of satisfaction, but a disdain. In other words, when the sex is engaged outside of the proper context, it actually becomes destructive after that momentary satisfaction. So that you see... um, uh, like forced sexuality, where men are using power uh, to conquer women, and then even right after they're done, they, they despise the woman, right? Think of Absalom uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, or um, uh, David uh, with Bathsheba. You think of these different stories. Momentary satisfaction. When you buy things, same thing, momentary satisfaction. Do you know that there's a chemical in your hormone called dopamine? and it makes you happy. And this, this kicks in uh, when you have a desire and you go out and you fulfill that desire, you get a hit of dopamine. And so if you're walking through Costco and you see some sweater and you imagine yourself in that sweater, you know, being handsome and dashing and all that stuff, and then you go and you lay down your $19 for that sweater, for a moment there, you're super happy that you have that sweater. But here's the thing. With the exception of this sweater, which I've had for 15 years, it doesn't last, right? Every other sweater comes and goes. This one remains the same. I, lo- I love it. Love it. But do you understand my point, right? You buy, we buy stuff, and this is Ecclesiastes. Gone. Uh, and, you know, big event. Oh, you know, Christmas is coming. Wow. And then it's gone. So you have the dopamine hit, and it dissipates. So that's, that's one reason people are frustrated with desire because uh, it feels like we end up enslaved to our desires because even though we satisfy them, we're going to have the same longing again. And here's the other problem with desire. Our desires are broken. So even though God gave us desires as a gift, the desires that God has given us are all open to abuse. Food is a great example. But we can talk about food, we can talk about sex, we can talk about money, uh, But food's a great example because food's a gift, right? And so in a perfect world, we're hungry. And when we're hungry, there's food. And so then what do we do? And we eat the food. And we eat the food with gratitude. And and we actually move upstream. We receive the food. Oh, this is a gift from God. Thank you, God, for the food. I don't mean a perfunctory prayer before we eat. I mean an actual moment of gratitude. Look, the soil... The miracle, the water coming down, the people who grew it, the people who transported it, uh, the means to buy it, the means to cook it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And suddenly, we're in an act, it becomes an act of worship, you see. And it, in the best sense, that's, so we have a desire, and when it works right, that's what happens. But that's not what happens. Instead, uh, you're driving home, and a commute has stressed you out, and you're hungry, and you pull off to go shopping in Issaquah, and you see a sign, 
20 nuggets at Burger King for $1.49. So then you're like this, I've earned it, I'm gonna eat it, even though I know it's gonna be terrible. Like I'll have a moment of dopamine, I know that, but then I know post-dopamine it's gonna be a disaster, I know it. And yet, this happened just a little bit less than a year ago, when I, like I went, and I pulled in a Burger King, knowing it's destructive, I'll take 20 nuggets for $1.49. I say with a smile on my face, like, yeah, this is gonna be amazing, right? And then, and then, I'm, I'm, then I go, oh, and it's, so, it's springtime. So it's light out now, so I can eat them while I drive because I can see to dip the nugget in the <laughs> sauce, which I cannot do this time of year. I have to stop and eat them if I do eat them. And I can't eat and drive. But now I can eat and drive, so I don't even have to think about the food. <laughs> you know, NPR and nuggets, done. Right? And then I get home and I'm sick. And I go, and then I go, well, my wife goes, why do you do this? I mean, you know it's destructive. Here's why, because my desires are broken. Do you understand? So then something happened to me just about a, maybe a week later. I'd been invited to a, um, a lecture called The Spirituality of Wine. And so this woman was speaking and she grew up in Germany uh, in a vineyard and became a vintner, basically, and went on to study theology and went on to write a book, Spirituality of Wine, and so now she's going around and lecturing and pushing her book, and I was invited to this thing, this party, where she gave a lecture and then there was a wine tasting thing, right? So I go to, I go to this, and, uh, and it really did change my view of food. Like this is, it was sanctifying for me. Here's what, because here's what happened. She, she said, look, um, when you eat, if you eat mindfully, eating can become an act of worship. And I'll just say to you, I never thought of that before, ever in my life. And so then we, she, some, a guy comes out with a, some bottles, bottles of wine and he explains the history of the vineyards and the grapes and and then it was like 10 p.m. and he said, and we open these at 5 p.m. because you open them early and you let them ripen or whatever they do. I don't know what they do, but you let them, you let them mature and we're supposed to, then they pour and then we're just supposed to swirl it and smell it before you drink it. I've never done this before, you know. Oh, you know, Costco wine, <laughs> done. No, it's an act of worship now. And oh, and you're pondering all that went into the making of this art, right? And then her point was, this is to be food. This is, God gave you the gift of food. And so the desire that you have to eat isn't just because you're hungry. This is, it's an opportunity to go upstream and worship. Do you see? And, and, and so this is kind of the point that I'm making here is that desire is broken. So instead of food being an act of worship, for most of us in the room, often food becomes a problem that, that, that manifests in overeating Compulsions for eating, obesity, undereating, anorexia, bulimia, body image issues. Sex is a gift, but, but uh, the perversion of sexuality leads to human trafficking, leads to pornography, leads to people being caught in the ugly web of prostitution, leads to, leads to just an entire uh, drama of destruction 
Because the gift has been perverted. We, like we, we have a longing to live lives that are secure, right? But security addiction leads to the insane pursuit of wealth, leads to debt addiction, leads to work addiction, leads to classism, poverty, homelessness, families shattered. So look, God's given us desires, but in our broken humanity, those desires unfettered become destructive. Does that make sense? So, I mean, you, you can look at Samson in the Old Testament, and he had this desire, this sexual desire, sexual conquest over and over again, and it ended up destroying him. Samson's sex, uh, desire for sex. The rich young ruler, desire for uh, wealth and financial security, and he wouldn't follow Jesus because that desire became an idol in his life. Samson, 300 wives. That's excessive desire for something. Weddings? I don't know what. But something, right? And that's destructive, so I understand, look, our world is filled with this. It's not just mess. It's not just sex. It's money. It's security. It's, it's sleep. It's pleasure addictions of every stripe. So the East comes along and says, hey, boom, I've got the solution. Kill all the addictions. And frankly, some of fundamentalism says the same thing, right? And then, no, Jesus comes along and he offers a different way. One author wrote, when a man, Christian author, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's actually seeking God. And this is the point, upstream. Oh, I want sex. So I'm going to hire somebody. No, you don't want sex. You want intimacy. And really what you want, ultimately, that, that longing for intimacy ultimately met in Christ. That's, so so C.S. Lewis says, look, the problem is not that we desire too much. The problem is we don't desire enough. We're not going upstream. It seems that our Lord uh, finds our desires not too strong but weak, quoting Lewis now. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. I love this. We are far too easily pleased. Far from killing desire, Jesus' perspective is that desires, even the ones that are held in healthy ways, are intended to point us to Christ. So, so take food, like when you're hungry, you eat and you give thanks and you worship, you're moving upstream. Uh, take intimacy. When you have a healthy relationship of intimacy, this, you, re you realize this relationship mirrors your relationship with Christ and you move upstream. Take your line for security. When God provides for you and you get a paycheck every month from Amazon or Boeing or wherever you get your paycheck from, it's not really from them because God owns everything. God is providing for you and so you're ultimately being allowed to see that your final source of security isn't Amazon, it's Christ. And so, like our desires followed can lead us upstream. Does this make sense? So it's a very important thing for us to think about our desires and, and, and allow those desires to point us to Christ. So you don't actually want a second drink so you can calm down. You want peace. But in the end, that peace comes from Christ, not alcohol. You don't actually want, quote, quote, unquote, sexual release or, uh, quote, unquote, Tinder relationship, oxymoron, if ever I've heard one, right? You want intimacy. That's what you want. But intimacy, ultimately, the final source of intimacy, the foundation, the beginning and the end of intimacy, Christ. You don't want cocaine. You want confidence. You don't want money. You want contentment. So the challenge then is learning, how to, learning to discover how our longings point us to Christ. And how do we do that? Well, we, we need to make sure that our hunger and thirst 
is pointing in the right direction. Second facet, the right object of our longings. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So this word righteousness, defined as acting with justice, moving toward justice, being just, there's often been a division here in church history as people have tried to apply this notion of justice to our lives. What am I to hunger for? Well, be hungry to be the right person, right? Personal righteousness. And other people say, oh, no, no, hunger for living in a righteous world. And so another debate ensues between personal righteousness and collective righteousness, right? Be the right person to live in a righteous world. And the people over here, be the right person, these people, they say, hey, look, the most important thing is for you to repent of your own sin and get your own act together. And if you live a righteous life, boom, done. That's all God wants from you, right? Uh, and, and people over here say, just look at Jesus. When he, when he encountered people, he, well, he told people to repent, right? So yeah, he intervened uh, to save the life of the woman caught in adultery, but then he said to her, John chapter 8, go and sin no more. And the woman at the well, yeah, he, you know, he intervened in her life and he engaged her in a relationship and pointed her to Messiah, but he also said, oh, by the way, uh, you've had five failed marriages and the guy you're living with right now, you're not even married. Let's talk about that. And the rich young ruler, hey, sell your stuff and give the money to the poor. There's always, in other words, there's personal righteousness. Yeah, he declares the coming of the kingdom, but he doesn't want people to jump on a social bandwagon without getting their act together. Does that make sense? Personal righteousness. Now, there's another group that says, oh, wait, wait a minute. Like, that's dangerous over there. And here's why it's dangerous. Because if, like, if you begin to think this way, Personal righteousness is like just a stone throw away from self-righteousness. Do you know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've cleaned up my act, so I'm good enough. And that's the end of the story. In other words, it leads to disengagement. And often people who complain that an obsession with personal righteousness leads to disengagement, often those people are right in their complaint. In other words, when my faith is defined in very personal terms, hear me, then this becomes my paradigm. You know what? I, I think Jesus is just calling me to be the very best person I can be. And to be blunt, that's why many people are blown through the doors into churches just like this one. Like we come in with our phobias, our fears, our hang-ups, our need for guidance and, and direction, and we want to be better people, and we come in here, and, we, and then, you know, we may hear things, and we want to, want to tweak our lives. We're trying to fix ourselves. Or, or in the best case, have Christ fix us. But a, it's a really dangerous because we can be like this. Okay, I, look, I give, I serve, I learn, I'm connected, I'm in community, I'm sober, I'm faithful to my spouse, don't do porn, done. And then here's what happens. You know, the world comes to your shore. Refugees, immigrants, unborn, racism, classism, human trafficking, and we're like this, not my table. Not my problem. Look, the best thing, the best thing, I, like all I can do is keep my head above water. I'm just trying to live a good life. Leave me alone. <laughs> and so uh, sometimes personal righteousness be becomes a wall preventing us from being fully in God's story because there's a whole other righteousness over here, collective righteousness. And if I just live over here, I'd be making peace with uh, uh, social and systemic dysfunctions that are destroying the world. And I do that uh, to my own demise, frankly, in terms of 
being fully in God's story. In other words, if I'm going to be fully in God's story, it's not just personal righteousness, it's personal righteousness and collective righteousness. Because God is calling me to stand in the gap regarding immigration, regarding racism, regarding consumerism, regarding the degradation of the, the environment, regarding violence. None of these things are normal. And so uh, we're not just called to, to be righteous, we're called to be the presence of a world made right by our values and actions and to, to, to go out into the world and bless the world. And I'm just going to suggest, suggest to you that if you follow your hungers fully, not only will your personal righteousness undergo transformation, but God will lead you into the story so, so that the very part that you have to play in the story of making the world right, the ver- your part will be discovered. Let me show you what that looks like by showing you two videos real quickly, and then we'll wrap this up. My name is Mike McCarter, and I work in the technology industry. And about four years ago, I felt called to join the fight to defend vulnerable populations, starting with children and victims of sex trafficking. The real shift was when I moved from just learning about, and in some cases, turning away from some of the injustices I was hearing about to actually acknowledging that some of the greatest injustices in history are happening right now. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. Currently, there are estimates that 20 million people are enslaved. It's not just something that occurs in faraway places, it actually occurs right here in Seattle. Seattle is the third largest port in the U.S. for human trafficking. As a project manager in the technology industry, I recognize there are a lot of untapped technologies that could be used to help in this problem space. So I started with um, a friend of mine um, on a project called PhotoDNA Cloud Service. PhotoDNA Cloud Service is focused on eradicating child exploitation imagery from the internet. From there we moved to a technology that helps find missing children and we did that in partnership with a nonprofit called Thorn. Most recently we've been working on a project that fights sex trafficking by educating victims and showing support to them and by deterring and educating buyers of these victims. So I was in church and I had this emotional experience where God was telling me to apply to this nonprofit called Rest, Real Escape from the Sex Trade, and apply for their volunteer jail position. And, you know, I just came to reflect upon that and realized that I was an unlikely fit for that role. I've got blonde hair, I'm really smiley, I have four children. Um, but then I came back to church the following week and the, had the same experience. And then I went home and I was kind of ignoring that. I talked to my community a little more and then I came back and the third time I had the same experience in church. So it happened three times. And then I decided I needed to listen. I went, I went for it, I applied. And when I went to go apply for this role, after the interview, they asked me to take on a leadership role and I was really excited about that. So I said yes, basically on faith. And then two and a half years later, it's been probably the most rewarding work that I've ever done in my whole life. I am so glad that I said yes and stepped into this role. We 
do one-on-one -on -one mentoring with incarcerated youth, and then we also do um, workshops where we talk about um, sexual exploitation, and the goal of that is to prevent youth from being sexually exploited. Some of the results of this work upon my life, personally, is that it has been transformative to me. And when I look back and reflect, I realize that when I stepped in and I said yes, that God's love began to grow inside of me exponentially for this population of youth. And um, the other thing that I realized and I'm grateful to know is that the resurrection power of Christ can change any life. There's no life that is too far gone. God is that powerful that he can change any life and I've seen that. These are really inspiring stories from people right here in your own community. And the reason that I wanted to share them with you is because these stories are uh, Mike and Carrie's response to hunger, if this makes sense. In other words, they're following the hunger of their heart, and God is taking them upstream and leading them, not only their own personal transformation, but also to be more, more fully vetted in God's story as, as, as shining as light in our world. And that's not their calling. That's our calling collectively. Every one of us in the room has a role to play in the story of hope that God is writing in the world. And so the, the, the challenge for us, a couple of challenges right at this moment when we think about this, and, and one of the challenges is this. It's tempting to say, well, I haven't heard anything. You guys know that old song by Dave Matthews, uh, Gray Street? I'm guessing most of you are either too young or too old to know this song. But the, I was just looking up the lyrics here. And it's about this woman who's stuck. And uh, it says, look how she listens. She says nothing of what she thinks. She's staring and st stumbling through her memories. And she's staring out on the street. And she says, how did it come to this? There's an emptiness inside of her. And then this is what's so interesting. How she wishes it was different. She prays to God most every night. And though she swears he doesn't listen, there's still a hope in her he might. You ever prayed because you're frustrated and you're like this? I don't hear anything. I'm asking for guidance. I'm asking for transformation. I'm asking for hope. I'm asking for freedom. I don't hear anything. Listen. In the silence, there's still something there. Do you know what it is? Your, your th hunger and thirst. It's there. Your hunger and thirst remains. And your hunger and thirst is what God put in you to lead you to Christ. Follow your thirst, do you see? And, and, and for Mike, it led to involvement in ending human trafficking. And for Carrie, it led to this mentorship program uh, that she's involved with uh, 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 among prisoners. And for you, I don't know what it is. But here's the thing. I'm not the head of this church. Christ is. And so I'm not going to tell you what to do. Christ is going to tell you what to do. And I promise you this, what you do will be different than what other people do. So don't lay your thing on everyone. And so if, if you marched and other people didn't, they're not sinners because they didn't march. And if you march the next Saturday and other people didn't, they're not sinners. And if you're not in the Black Lives Matter movement and, not, and, and others are, it doesn't mean that one of you is right and one of you is wrong. The most important thing you can do is know Christ and allow Christ to speak to you. Because this, friends, what God is doing requires a symphony of hope, not soloists. And, and only Christ knows the role that you have to play. And it, far be it from me to say that everybody ought to play viola. How boring would that be, right? Everybody has a part, and when we all listen and we all play our part, this is when hope takes root. Are you listening? To your own hunger, that's where this begins. 
And then here's the final facet, the right outcome of relying satisfaction, not addiction. Our hunger for righteousness leads to personal changes. On this side of it, we'll repent of using alcohol as a substitute for peace. We'll repent of using recreational sex as a substitute for intimacy. We'll repent of people-pleasing as a substitute for acceptance. But then more, <laughs> our hunger and thirst for righteousness will begin to ripen in us in something over here as well. And we'll recognize that God has given us gifts to lead to light shining in our world. So as we close this evening, it's just so appropriate to close at this table. Because this is where Jesus says, right? Uh, listen, um, John chapter 6, he said, everybody who ate man in the wilderness, they, they died. And they hungered again. But whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And so Jesus is saying something here, it's super significant. He's saying, I have a, in, in a world where satisfaction is cyclical, right? It comes and goes, comes and goes. I'm telling you, this is Jesus. I'm telling you, my life is satisfaction. Come and eat. And then we know this as well. <laughs> Though we're satisfied, our appetites will still betray us, and we'll fail, we'll fail with our bodies, with our food, with our money, with our words, we'll fail. 20 nuggets at $1.49, <laughs> we'll fail. Here's Jesus. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you and everyone. Why? For the forgiveness of sin. So you need never wonder if this satisfaction has departed. He hasn't, because his love was never based on your performance. He's done everything needed for you to stand secure. Eat and drink. Now, this evening as well, I'm inviting you to kind of lean, before you come up here, lean into the Holy Spirit and ask the Spirit to reveal to you, like, what are you hungry for tonight? Or what are you thirsty for tonight? And it may be very personal. I'm thirsty for freedom for addiction, from addiction. Or I'm, I'm, I'm hungry for reconciliation in a particular relationship. Or it may be very collective. Uh, I'm, I'm thirsty for uh, a world where immigrants have a place to go. I'm thirsty uh, for life in the womb being protected. Whatever it is. And I'm just going to say to you, uh, as you name your hunger, name your thirst, if you would offer these as prayers in these little books here, I want to pray for our congregation collectively, and I'll take these home and read them, you see, uh, over the course of the week, and that'll be meaningful to me. And so I thank you in advance for sharing as God has laid it on your heart. But name your hunger, and then come and realize, I'm going upstream to the source. It all starts here. And then Christ will so feed me that he'll propel me out of the world as a voice of hope. Let's meet Christ here. Please travel if you would, counterclockwise. Come whenever you're ready. And if you need gluten-free bread, it's in these baskets. Father, would you now speak to our hearts as we come to your table? We're hungry. We're hungry because um, people are waiting to be freed from places where bombs are dropping on hospitals and they have nowhere to go. We're, we're hungry because racism remains rampant and fear on the increase. And we're hungry for personal reasons. Would you meet us here, Father, as we go upstream to you as the source? 
In the name of Christ we pray.